I have a question for you. Do you ever sit around and wonder, or stand around and wonder, or gaze and wonder, or think in your head, does God really love me? Do you ever wonder, am I really going to heaven? Do you ever wonder, is God for real? We come in here and we sing these songs. We come to church. We come to class. I mean, everybody in here, how many of you are in class today? Almost all of you, okay? I'm halfway here. You're, ha you're here. Um, you know, we do these things. But is there ever this thing in your brain or in your heart that says to you, I wonder what, how much this stuff's for real. Or, or if it is for real, I, I, I don't think God really smiles on me. I think God's probably really upset with me. I, I just... I don't measure up. There's this area in my life I can't conquer. And I know it's wrong. And what am I going to do? How can God ever smile at me in light of what I know compared to what I do? I don't know if you've ever thought that before. Have you ever thought, will God really take care of me? Or is he too upset to? Am I not measuring up enough for him to? These are questions that troubled Martin Luther. They troubled him severely. And he, Martin Luther spoke, uh, well, he spoke Latin because he learned it in school, but his common language was German. Anybody here speak German? Okay, me neither. But there is a wonderful, we all know some German. And when you study theology, <laughs> yeah, you blitzkrieg, uh, when you study theology, there are some German words you have to learn because as Protestants, most of our theology comes from the German heritage of Martin Luther. And so there are words that like Weltanschauung means your worldview or how you view the world. Now again, for those listening, especially off the internet, I'm from Lubbock, Texas, so that's my German accent. Um, <clears throat> there is another word. Anfechtungen. And it's a word that there's really no equivalent in the English language for. It's a reference to the idea of, of the, the, the assaults, the spiritual assaults, the mental assaults, the despair that you might have over where you are spiritually. Not just the despair, but, but a spiritual crisis that may be coming out in your life. Or, or fear, spiritual fear that you may be having. There's always questions and debate in theology. Is this coming from God? Or is this anfektungen coming from Satan? Where is it coming from? But this spiritual assault that you feel, these questions, this dread, this feeling of alone, this despair, this crisis of the spirit. And we don't have a good English word for it. But it's a wonderful word for you to learn. So sometime when you're really down and having a crisis and your spouse comes to you and says, what is wrong? You can just look at them, kind of shrug your shoulders and say... <laughs> For Martin Luther, nights were always the worst. He said, these crises, this despair would come over me more at night when I'm alone with my thoughts and I'm thinking through my day or I'm contemplating my tomorrow or I'm trying to figure out how to get to sleep. And Martin Luther would agonize over a lack of certainty. How could he be sure 
of this God? And how could he be sure of the love of this God? For Martin Luther growing up, see, let's go back. It all started November 10th, 1483. Um, see, that's Europe, okay? That's Germany in Europe. Right there, hold on, there, that's Martin Luther. See him? Okay, I'm going to blow it up. Okay, there, in Eiselbahn. See him? Right there. He's in there. Okay, hang on. Here's a better blow up. See? That's his house. That's where he was born. You can go see it. He was born to Hans and Margaret Luder, also spelled L-U-D-H-E-R, Luder. Okay? So it's either a D-H or a D, depending on how you want to do it. He's saying, I thought he was Luther. Nah, not yet. That doesn't come for a while. He changes his name. He's got the Louis Miori syndrome, and I'll talk to you about it in a minute. <laughs> it's the truth. Louis will come up with a nickname for everybody. Okay? Luther is a nickname that Martin Luther gave himself. It wasn't his name. His name was Martin Luther. Uh, no, he, he wasn't a hammer. He dropped out of law school. Uh, in fact, but uh, he was a, uh, much holier than the hammer. Martin Luther was born to Hans and Margaret Luther. His parents were devout people as far as they went. His father was a copper miner. Uh, he mined co copper, uh, actually got to a point where he owned five different smelting foundries. But uh, his parents, while devout, lived in the hinterlands of Germany. If we go back in that last slide, this is sort of the border of civilization at this point in time. It's, it's, uh, it's still civilized, but it's, it's the people there at this point in time, they believed in, and, and Martin Luther believed in woodland fairies and demons. Um, they, they, didn't, they couldn't read most of them. They didn't have books, most of them. And so they had a very what we would call primitive concept of spiritual things and spirituality. The day after Martin was born on November 11th, I guess would be the day after, he was baptized at the St. Peter and Paul Church, which you can also still see there. His parents took him in immediately for baptism into the church. Uh, uh, his parents put a lot of money into giving Martin a very early education. He started school at four in Latin school. His parents loved him, and he never questioned their love, but they were both very severe. He talked about his mother uh, beating him, uh, caning him, uh, whipping him until blood came because he had stolen a nut. He talked about his father beating him so badly one time that Martin Luther actually ran away from home until he found some reconciliation. Now, Martin didn't say this with bitterness. Parents, I think, were generally a lot more um, uh, physically stern then than we are today, and uh, um, his parents would just beat the living fire out of him over things. Uh, in Latin school, you go to school. You're paying to go to school. This wasn't free public education, right? You pay to go to school. How many school teachers here? Okay. How many school teachers here have ever administered licks? A few, okay, a few. It doesn't happen as much now as it did when I was a kid. When I was a kid... That's, I mean, P.E. coaches especially were good at coaching P.E., teaching history, and giving licks or swats. And I can remember one time in P.E. where the coach thought we were all goofing off. And it wasn't like, okay, I think you're goofing off, you're goofing off. It was, you're all goofing off. Everybody line up and stick your shorts out. 
And he just went down the line, whacked each of us on the butt with the paddle. Well, Martin Luther um, had, went to a Latin school. And in the Latin school, if you accidentally spoke German, you got a demerit. At the end of the week, you'd get licks based on how many demerits you had. He talked about one week, one day, one day where he got 15 canings. And he said, it's not because I didn't do my homework, it's because I didn't do it right. Um, uh, there was a student in each class who was called the, the, the wolf, German for the wolf. And this was, or I don't know, Latin for the wolf, excuse me, lupus. And, and this is, is the student whose job it was to spy on other students, because if he could hear any student speak a word in German, he could turn them in. And then that student who spoke a word in German had to wear a, um, a donkey's face off of the concept that a donkey, um, which is in Latin an asinus, uh, carried the same connotation that it does today in a slang sense, and that person had to wear the donkey's face until someone else spoke in German. So this is the kind of early education he got, which his parents paid for. He loved music. He was quite the guitarist, except it was a lute. And uh, uh, we'll hear more about that when we get to the lesson where he radically changed church music. Um, Martin Luther is the reason we are here today very directly in a chain that we can very easily trace back. And that's what we'll have the joy of doing. Luther, as a student, went not only through school, but his parents paid for him to go to university. He got his Bachelor of Arts uh, in Liberal Arts in 1502. He got his Master of Arts in 1505. And then his dad said, Martin, I'm so proud of you. And his dad took, uh, bought a copy of the Corpus Juris, which was a law book, and gave it to Martin as a graduation gift and said, I want you to go to law school. What you're going to do is you're going to graduate from law school. You're going to help me legally put together more mine deals, paper deals, for, uh, uh, land deals for these mines that I'm buying. And you're going to be able to provide for us in our old age. We've invested all this money in you for you to do that. And Luther says, okay, Dad. His dad gives him the law book and then starts calling Luther with the formal, polite German name instead of the common German name to show his son the respect and dignity that his son has now brought to the family and to himself. And that was great for two weeks. But two weeks into law school, Luther is walking back to school from his home. And while he's walking on this July day, a horrible thunderstorm sets in. Lightning flashes and comes close enough to Luther that it literally knocks him on the ground. Luther is petrified. Luther cries out to St. Anne. Anne, St. Anne is supposedly the mother of the Virgin Mary. St. Anne is the patron saint for mine workers, miners. And so that's the saint that Luther knew from his daddy. And so, so Luther cries out, St. Anne, help me, as he's there on the ground from the lightning that's just crashed, and I will become a monk. I sent a copy of this lesson to a friend of, of ours who is a monk, and I said, you know, I just would love your insight on this from your perspective. And his note back on that part said, this is not a good reason to become a monk. <laughs> Uh, but Luther made the commitment. And so he felt obligated to keep it. And so two weeks later, Luther is at the door of the Erfurt Monastery 
He was at the University of Erfurt's law school. He probably couldn't get into Texas Tech. Um, <laughs> he's at the uh, University of Erfurt Law School. And he changes and he goes and presents himself to the monastery, a Franciscan, uh, not a Franciscan, an Augustinian monastery, and says, I want to be a monk. They bring him in and they give him the vows. By the way, dad was not really happy about this. It's hard for a monk to provide financially for his parents in their old age because one of the things the monk has to do is take a vow of poverty. Um, Dad's sitting there saying, you have brothers. We put our money in you. You, we paid for school. And this is what you do with it? Dad was not happy. Here's what happens when you become a monk. Or here's the way you started in the monastery. We get this from the Augustinian uh, 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 like orders. This is what would happen. The prior, the, the head of the monastery, stands upon the steps of the altar. Martin Luther prostrates himself. The prior asks him, what do you seek? And Martin Luther answers, God's grace and your mercy. Then the prior raised up Luther and said, are you married? Luther, no. Are you a bondsman? No. Are you afflicted with secret disease? No. And with those no's, the prior says, here's what your life will be like. You will have to renounce your self-will, living for yourself. You'll have a scant diet. You'll have rough clothing. You'll have to pray and stay awake at night. You'll have to work during the day. You'll mortify the flesh. You'll, you'll uh, take on the reproach of poverty. In other words, you won't have any money. You'll have the shame of begging for your living and the distastefulness of living in a cloistered cell. Are you ready to take upon these burdens? Martin Luther says, yes, with God's help and in so far as human frailty allows. Then... Luther was admitted for a year of probation to see whether Luther and the monastery would agree that this was a calling for Luther. The choir starts chanting, the head was tonsured. That means that they would shave this top part right here. Um, I'm not going to stand. have you stand up, Lewis, and show them. <laughs> this part right here, they would shave this, and then they would put it like a bowl around you, and give it that type. That was the tonsure. That's the... Uh, the haircut of, of, the, of the priests, uh, I mean of the monks. And uh, then after they do that, they take his civilian clothes off, they put on the, the, nov the habit of a novice, then Martin Luther bows his knee, the prior says, Bless thou thy servant. Hear, O Lord, our heartfelt pleas, and deign to confer thy blessing on this thy servant, whom in thy holy name we've clad in the habit of a monk. May he continue with thy help faithful in thy church and merit, and merit, and merit eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. They sing a closing hymn, and while they do it, Luther prostrates himself on the floor in front of the altar with his arms out in a crucifix form, cross form, and his face on the ground. And did you know at these churches they'd frequently bury holy people? And like in the monasteries, they'd bury them, actually some of the really holy ones in front of the altar. And I find it extremely interesting. 
and more than a tad ironic that Luther gets prostate before the altar and he's laying on top of the plaque for the grave of the Augustinian monk from that monastery who had been at the Council of Constance and voted to burn John Huss at the stake. And Martin's covering that up. It's very interesting. Okay, he's at the monastery. Now, as an Augustinian monk, his mentor and his new father figure, because while Martin was close to his father, there was a great deal of distance. His father basically uh, didn't have much to do with him once he enters the monastery uh, for at least a while. Um, so his father figure is this guy named John Staupitz. And John Staupitz, Johannes, Johannes, but for us, John. John Staupitz is real tight with the ruling power of that part of Germany, a guy named Frederick the Wise. Okay? That's going to come in real handy at saving Brother Martin's life in a little while. Um, Martin, after doing it, uh, 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 being there for two years, is made a priest. Not all monks are priests. Priests are the ones who actually have the ability in, in the Catholic Church to perform the Mass, taking the bread and the wine and turning it into the body and blood of Christ. Okay? That's a big deal in the Catholic Church at the time. It still is a big deal. So Martin is actually given that ability. He's made a priest. That's a huge step forward. When Martin has that ability, he call, they call the first mass that Martin's going to administer over, where Martin's going to stand up and he's going to basically be God's tool for reenacting the crucifixion of Christ and taking Jesus Almighty and bringing him down and turning this bread and turning this wine into the very blood and body of Christ because that's the concept of the Catholic Church then and now. And so, so that's a huge thing for a priest to do, right? I mean, think about it. You are going to, through your words and your deeds, bring Jesus Christ down from heaven in some way, shape, form, or fashion and turn him into these elements so that people can eat of him and drink of him and share in his life. Okay? So it's a big thing. So invitations are sent out. Martin's family comes to see their son celebrate his first mass. His dad comes. His dad brings 20 horsemen with him, a big party, a big showing. His dad brings great gifts for the monastery. Martin stands up and he starts to perform the Mass and as he starts to perform it, he forgets his lines. And he writes later that the reason why is all he could think of was, you know, be before you perform the Mass, the priest is supposed to do his confession because you should be totally pure when you perform it. And Martin was sitting there thinking, I'm not totally pure. I confessed as much as I could, but oh my goodness, I'm thinking of all these things and here I am, I'm supposed to do this. How am I a wormy guy like me supposed to invoke the presence of God Almighty. He's, and, and he freezes. And he can't do it. And the priest with him takes over and helps him through it. And once he gets Martin started, Martin... I mean, Martin's been hearing this all of his life, so he, he's able to finish it up. Afterwards, he sits down with his dad at the big table, and they're having the big feast. And he says, Dad, it's so good to see you. Thank you for coming. And, and you brought honor to me, and you brought honor to our name, and honor to the monastery with these gifts you brought. It's wonderful. Are you feeling better now about my decision? 
you know, there comes a time where you just don't push past that point, okay? You just leave well enough alone, right? Any of y'all have a family? Okay, there's always someone in the family where you say, just don't cross the line, okay? We all know where that line is, and you just don't cross. Well, bless Martin's heart. He was feeling the moment. And his dad was not so much feeling the moment. So his dad kind of stands up and says, what? How can I feel better about it? Did you forget the fourth commandment to honor your mother and father? That means to take care of them when they're old. How are you, a poverty monk, supposed to take care of us? You think we spent all this money on you for that? At which point Martin's kind of looking around the dinner table and all the other monks who are just kind of like... <clears throat> and Martin says, Dad, don't you think I can take better care of you in your old age by praying for you? Dad says, No. Martin says, well, Dad, let me tell you how this came about. I was in lightning and a thunderstorm, and, and he tells him the experience. He says, Dad, don't you understand now? Dad said, yeah, gets up and leaves. And as he's leaving, he turns around and says, gee, I wonder if that was God you heard or Satan, and walks off. Tough time. Um, so uh, um, Martin continues to move forward. Uh, Martin makes a trip to Rome. Uh, his trip to Rome was very eventful. He got sent there by Staupitz to try and mediate a dispute between some Augustinian brothers. And, and the Catholic Church at the time was really big on um, um, relics and uh, things you could do. to, to it, was, it, it was viewed kind of as a win-win deal. You do these things and, it, and the church wins because the church gets money. And in return, you'll win because it'll start shaving some time off purgatory for you. See, so this is a win-win deal in the eyes of the church. So, and, and when I say the church here, I'm talking about certain elements of the church. I always want to be careful to recognize that this, that the Catholic Church had a lot of people, like Martin Luther ultimately, that are very upset and think these practices are wrong and need to be changed. And ultimately, the Catholic Church makes some major changes at the Council of Trent, but that's for another lesson. The bottom line is, is Martin goes to Rome, and in Rome, Martin finds that the church, the Holy Lands, the absolute center of his church existence, is really bad corrupt. They thought that they had these stairs that Pilate had in front of his place that Jesus had had to go up, and they built these 20-some-odd stairs into the Lateran Palace, which was where the popes had lived for years and years. And one of the, the things, the teachings of the church was, if you'd come to Rome and you would, would go up those stairs and crawl them and you would say uh, an Our Father on each one, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you'd say it on each one, each time you did it, you could, you could do it in honor of someone and it'd spring them out of uh, purgatory. So Martin's there. He's got grandparents and all this stuff. And his thought, and just for good measure, he's not only doing each stair, he's doing it on his hands and knees and he's kissing each one just to make sure it really works. Okay? He's going upstairs and he's thinking, man, I wish my mom and dad were dead. I'll never get back to Rome. I could have sprung them from purgatory. As it is, you know, you can't do this for the future. Martin gets up to the top of the stairs and he turns around and he looks back and he has this question in his brain. Anfektungen. He says, what if none of this is real? 
He goes back to Erfurt and he has a one-year teaching stint at a town called Wittenberg and then ultimately gets sent back to Wittenberg to be a Bible professor. Wittenberg, unusual town. It was, uh, well, why should I tell you about it? Let me use the words of one of his contemporaries who wrote about Wittenberg. Wittenberg, about 2,100 people, not a huge city. Small, poor, ugly, stinking, hideous, wretched, unhealthy, smoky, full of slop, populated by barbarians and sellers of beer. So wrote J. Cochleus, 1524. Sellers of beer, that's because there were 400 homes there at the time, and 174 out of 400 had paid for licenses to brew beer. So they had 174 breweries in a town with 400 families. Small, poor, ugly, stinking, hideous, wretched, unhealthy, smoky, full of slop populated by barbarians and sellers of beer. But they did have one other thing, which God's hand moves in. See, in 1450, so we're going back 60 years, something that I think was the major transformer of civilization had been invented. Anybody care to guess? Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, and they actually had one in this little town. And that, my friends, is the way God will take Luther and change the face of Western civilization. Martin Luther teaches Bible. He starts out, and, and, and his first Bible class he teaches for the first year and a half is the Psalms. Now, Martin would read 10 Psalms a day, so he'd read through the entire book every month. By the time he was midway through life, he'd memorized all the Psalms. And Martin would teach this, but meanwhile, while Martin's doing this, his anfektungen is continuing. Martin says, it's like a rat that's gnawing at me. I'm being chewed at by a rat. That's what these, this guilt, that's what these stresses, that's what this uncertainty, that's what this bother is, that's what this, this inability to, to, to relate with God in peace. It's, it's destroying who I am. I'm being eaten up by rats. Have you fasted enough? That's the question he would ask himself on days when he was going to sleep and he thought, today I didn't sin, at least today I didn't sin. And then he'd say, wait a minute, did I fast enough? Maybe I could have fasted some today and I didn't fast. Am I really poor enough? I have possessions. Maybe I should have given my possessions away. Maybe I should have given away, you know, maybe I, I, there's got to be something. Maybe I could have given away some of the food from one of my meals. How can I truly say that I'm righteous before God? And if I really have and I've done everything I can so that I would please God and God would be pleased with me, then I am wretchedly selfish because I did it to please God so God would be pleased with me. So even the best thing I do stinks. I can't figure this out and it's gnawing at him. He'd go to confession. His confession, Staupitz would say, would last six hours at times. Staupitz was not a fan of Luther's confessions. He said to him, he said, you know, Luther was confessing sins like... One of the sins he confessed was flatulence. Yeah. Uh, young people, that's passing gas, more politely said. And he would confess it as a sin. And he would get so upset because I, his confessions would go for six hours. And he's doing this every day. And, he's, and as soon as he's out of confession, he's thinking, oh no, I did that you know, one other time today and I forgot to confess it. And at some point, 
He just, Martin Luther in frustration says to, to his confessor, he says, we have an angry God making demands that no human can meet. And after hearing this for six hours, day after day after day, Stavitz finally looks at him and says, actually, Martin, God's not angry with you. You're angry with God. There's some problem here, but, but it's not from God. And, 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 and Luther's told, don't focus on the judgments of God that you can't understand, but on the wounds of Christ that show a love you can rely upon. Pretty good counsel, and Luther took it to heart, and Luther began to understand that what he really needed to do was not so much try to find every... Uh, uh, if, if, if Barhorst is going to treat you for having um, some... Uh, uh, chicken pox. He doesn't come in and give you medicine for each little pox. He comes in and he treats you as a whole person and helps get you through it. See? And so Luther uses that, except I think smallpox was his example, and uses that and says, you don't treat each fester, you try to treat the whole person. And so this was some help, but it still wasn't there. Now let me tell you about relics. At the same time this is going on, the Catholic Church is in major fundraising mode. Okay, Pope Leo X is building St. Peter's Basilica, the largest church in the whole world. And when you build the largest church in the whole world, you, you, you need money. And Leo X needs it. I mean, he's having to pay Raphael, who's painting all these things. Michelangelo's coming down the pike. He's going to be painting on it. They've got to get all this stuff done. Everybody needs money to do it. And so one of the ways they'd, they'd raise money is through relics. The idea would be, here is a, a vintage piece of the Bible history that you could come venerate and honor, kind of like a museum showing, and you'd pay money to do it. The church would get the money, and, and in return you'd be told not only are you getting to view this wonderful museum quality item, but time's coming off your purgatory. See, different things had different times that would come off your purgatory. For example, Frederick the Wise, who was the, I told you, he was the ruling guru in that part of Germany. He had some pretty good relics because he could raise money that way too. His church by 1520 had over 19,013 19, holy bones. Had them from infants supposedly that had been slain by Herod at Bethlehem. Had some of the wheat grains from the manger where Jesus was, had a twig from the burning bush where God spoke to Moses, he had one of the nails driven into the hands of Christ, had a strand of Jesus' beard, one piece of the gold brought by the wise men, a piece of Jesus' swaddling cloths. If you went and paid and actually looked at and venerated each one of his relics, you could save 1,902,202 years and 270 days off purgatory. It's pretty good. Had one of the thorns from Jesus' uh, uh, crown, supposedly. Now, while you've got that fundraising going on, you've also got the selling of indulgences. Indulgences are like these papal certificates that have been signed by someone who's authorized to sign on behalf of the Pope that gets you or some of your loved ones out of purgatory. You can actually buy out of purgatory. There was this guy named Tetzel who's walking around. I told you that. Um, ooh. Pope Leo needs the money because he's building the Sistine Chapel, the, the St. Peter's Basilica. Not only that, the archbishop of that area is a guy named Albrecht. 
and Albrecht's just bought a whole new seat. You see, he, he could buy another Archbishop Barry. He was going to be the Archbishop of Mainz as well. And, but to do that, he had to go to the world's wealthiest man, Jacob Fugger. And he went to Fugger, who had started banking in that area. And uh, Fugger loaned him the money at a high interest rate. So the Archbishop has to pay back that loan. See, the Catholic Church was selling positions as well. It'd be like if we hired Fleming, but for Fleming to get this job, he had to pay us. So he had to go out and get a loan, pay us, then do good enough in the job to where his 10% he got out of the collection plate each week wound up paying off his loan and paying him. It was pretty crass commercialism. And so um, Leo needs money. Albrecht, the archbishop, needs money. And to the rescue comes this fellow named John Tetzel. And this is an actual photocopy of one of Tetzel's indulgences. Tetzel was a Dominican who was a snake oil salesman in a way. He would go out and he would preach and sell indulgences at the same time. He'd preach about all the horrors of purgatory and then tell you if you want to come up and make a contribution, he'll give you a certified indulgence that will free one of your loved ones from uh, purgatory. Right now, think of someone in your family dead. They're suffering. Haven't you read Dante's Purgatory and Inferno? That's where they are. They're suffering. All you got to do is buy one of these and poof. He had a saying, here it was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> I don't know if he had like two first Sunday. <laughs> but uh, now, Luther's distressed. Luther tried the relic thing in Rome and it just didn't satisfy him. Luther's tried the confession thing and he's just not seeing it at confession. Luther is seeing the, the, this Tetzel guy and it's driving him crazy. He's saying there's no way. What that does is that makes people sinners. Why should we live responsible lives? All we got to do is buy an indulgence. And so Luther's just ballistic. Then Luther starts teaching the Psalms. Now the Psalms at that time were seen as a book that talked about the, Jesus Christ. I know it's an Old Testament book, but it was seen as a book that talked about Jesus. And a lot of Psalms do. You go to Psalm 22, which Luther was teaching and reading. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the way Psalm 22 starts out. Who said those words? Jesus on the cross. So you see how they see that's Jesus. Well, all of a sudden Luther's reading it and he's thinking, wait a minute. I know that feeling. I understand that. Christ had onfectungen. But how can Christ have despair? How can Christ wonder about being forsaken? Christ is perfect. Christ is the judge. He's the one I'm so scared of. Then he says, wait a minute. And it just starts coming to him. Christ must have had my sin. Because he didn't have any of his own. So if Christ is despairing and Christ is having a crisis, a spiritual crisis, he's got to be having mine. And God starts opening the light. And so Luther says, these indulgences are outrageous. These relics are outrageous. Writes the Archbishop Albrecht and sends him 95 reasons that they're wrong. Not realizing the Archbishop was getting a cut and needed the money. See, Tetzel would sell these indulgences. He'd give a cut to the archbishop, send a cut back to the pope, and he'd keep the rest. So Luther uh, uh, sends this letter out to Albrecht, and not only that, but he takes the 95 theses and he nails them on the church door, which was like the bulletin board back then. 
Now, a thesis was just a debating point. He said, here are 95 points I'd like to debate someone on if someone will step up. Because I challenge anybody on these 95 points that denounce the selling of indulgences. You know, there was a printing press in that town. And someone took his Latin indulgences down. And we don't know to this day who did. But they wrote them down. They translated them into German so the common person could understand them. And Latin and German copies of this started circulating. Within uh, two weeks to a month, not only were they to be found uh, uh, in Wittenberg, but they were down here in Nuremberg. They're over in Mainz. They're up in Hamburg. They're all over Germany. That could never have happened before the printing press. But it spread like wildfire. And boy, did it capture attention. Because not only were there some holy and devout people in the Catholic clergy who were distressed over where the church was, but there were a lot of common people, too, who thought it was pathetic and sickening. And now all of a sudden, in this backwater town of 2,000 beer guzzlers with a 20-year-old university that no one had ever heard of, this guy named Martin Luther has just had the audacity and backbone to post 95 reasons the Pope is bilking all of us Germans to pay for his church in his home that we'll probably never get to go to anyway. And everybody loved him. And the problem started happening. And Luther gets called on the carpet. And while Luther's doing this, Luther's now started teaching Romans. And he's actually sitting in the latrine. He says it reading Romans 1.17. In fact, he makes a big deal out of it. He says, isn't this incredible? This is just the way God works. He takes the most holy God in Jesus Christ and puts him among cow dung in a manger. He takes, you know, and he just starts reciting all of the ways God has worked so holy in the mundane and the ordinary. So uh, uh, Luther is in the latrine. He's reading Romans 1.17 and it occurs to him. Romans 1.17 says the righteous will live by faith. Now, there's a problem here. And I've just so messed up time. I'm sorry. We will pick up with some of this again because we're going to spend more time on Luther than I've told you. Okay? But uh, 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 we're going to talk about two of Luther's friends the next two weeks that are contemporaries. And we're coming back to Luther. And I will spend more time here and explain to you Luther and Jacob. But here's the deal. Luther says, oh, when Luther wrote his letter to uh, Albrecht, he called himself instead of Martin Luther, Eleutherius. Luther, for short. It's German for, or Latin German for the, the, the free one because he was declaring himself free from this. So wait, Lewis makes up nicknames for everybody. I'm, but I, I've done it with Lewis too. I call him St. Louis. Uh, <laughs> instead of St. Louis, Missouri, he's St. Louis, Miori. And you just sort of do these things. Well, that's how Luther comes upon his name. Romans 1.17 says the righteous will live by faith. Luther's problem was he'd been reading a Bible all these years that's in what language? Latin. And Latin doesn't have... We read our Bible, it says the righteous shall live by faith. And we can understand that and you think, well, why? It didn't take rocket science. No, the Latin word for righteous there is the word also translated just. And so Luther, all this time he's been reading these passages, the just will live by faith. He thinks it means if you're good enough and just enough, you'll live by faith. And he's the whole time saying, but I'm not just. I'm not just. I'm, I'm injustice in myself. In other words, he thought that meant you have to measure up first to God. 
And he's sitting there and all of a sudden it occurs to him. He says, I was born again. I was born again when I realized that what this passage was saying is that by faith, I am righteous. Not I get righteous and live by faith. By faith, I am righteous before God because I can't do it any other way. And he related it to Jacob wrestling at the fords of the Jabbok. Jacob and a man wrestled till daybreak. When the man saw he couldn't overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that Jacob's hip was wrenched. Then the man said, uh, let, sorry, me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. The man said, what's your name? Jacob. And the man said, your name won't be any longer Jacob. Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Luther says that that was Jesus that Jacob struggled with. And that we're all Jacobs. And we do struggle with God. But we win. We beat God. God is conquered by us. He says, now before you recoil and say, wait a minute, God can't be conquered by a man. Let me explain what I mean. I'm talking spiritually. Spiritually, when you embrace Jesus Christ in faith, God by His own word is obligated to love and protect you for eternity in spite of all of your sins, which He will forgive. And in that sense, God the just, angry God is conquered and turned into a loving Father. And our name is different because we are different and we are born again. And that's what Luther means. So our points for home. Do we conquer God? Here's the anxiety. All who sin apart from the law perish apart from the law. Doesn't matter if you know the law or not. You don't, may not know the law. You still sin, you're going to hell. And Jesus says in John 3, 16, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know what the last verse of John 3 says? If you skip to the end. He who does not believe on Him, the wrath of God, remains. It's not like, oh, you don't accept Jesus, then God's going to be angry. God's wrath, His justice, is on your sin. You don't accept Jesus, the, the, the sin is there. That's where the wrath of God remains. Jesus, it doesn't matter if you know it or not, that's just the human condition. There's nobody who does righteousness. There's not one person who does a good deed. Not even one, Paul says in Romans. And yet we have a righteousness from God. We have a righteousness of God apart from law that's been made known. And Paul's way Paul says it, he says, even though the law and the prophets attest to it, you can read about it in the Old Testament, but it's not a righteousness that comes from the Old Testament. It's a righteousness that comes from, not from anything you do. It's a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, to all who have faith. Everyone's sin, everyone's fallen short of the glory of God, but everyone can be justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And this was the profound thing Martin was getting to teach in Romans and Galatians. Now the journey's just begun. We've got a lot to talk about with Martin Luther. We're going to digress next week and we're going to deal with Zwingli and Melanchthon and hear about the Reformation from them. And then we're going to come back to Luther and see how he wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God, how he changed our music, how he uh, uh, escaped death in the Catholic Church. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for moving your hand in history and I thank you that in, in so many different areas and so many different ways 
you have touched us and you have reached out to us. I look at someone like Luther, who obviously your Holy Spirit revealed so much to, who, who, who has been used not only to shape uh, the Protestant tradition, but who was used also to help bring reform within the Catholic Church where needed as well. And Lord, I understand that his theology wasn't perfect, and I understand the theology he confronted wasn't perfect, but I also see your love for him, and in that I stand amazed, and I stand humbled, and I stand awed, because Lord, my theology is not perfect. And you know how imperfect my life is and how imperfect all of our lives are. That we would dare to call you God is only by the blood of Jesus Christ, else we would never have courage to talk to you much less seek your face. But in Jesus, our Savior, we do, and we pray, Lord, have mercy on us as sinners, and we glory and revel in the redemption that you have handed us freely through Jesus. Amen.